um, talking about worship. We've been doing that. We did that in the summer for a while, then took a five-week break where we focused on focusing outward through mission, and then restarted talking about worship two weeks ago. Um, how'd you guys like having old school Sam Westoff up here today helping us? Lead? One of the things I really appreciate about our community that, you know, Roger Nix has led the way, among others, of, that, that we're a family, a generational family. And it's, and it's not a shameful thing to move on and have a different role in the family. So come back whenever you want, Sam. We think you're pretty cool. Um, but we also have like Tim Lucas. Uh, Brooke was singing on stage. She was one of the worship leaders. Uh, Brian was in the back organizing things. So it's, it's just this is family biz, right? And so there's different things God calls us into, and it's just fun to get to do this together. So, so grateful to see you, Sam. Um, if you haven't been part of the, uh, the teachings thus far, you know, they, we're, we're just doing who, what, when, where, why, how kind of questions. That's the, that's the outline of this. And for whatever reason, it feels like the Lord has been meeting us. And maybe it's just because he likes to be with us. <laughs> but we talked about why do we worship? It's because God is so glorious. He's so beautiful and overwhelming, and we talked about all that it means that God is glorious, that worship's just the reasonable response to God's glory. It's just the natural thing that happens when, when you see a sunrise, when you see something beautiful, you go, whoa, and that's worship. And what worship is, is glorifying God. And, and, and what we mean by that, it's both embodying God's glory, He has baked into creation his very glory so that we show forth in the way we are and the way we live what God's beauty looks like. So just by being and acting, we worship God. In other ways, by declaring, by, by, with our wills and our, and our mouths, we do and say things to bring attention to God's glory. He doesn't need any glory from us. In fact, he's the only one who has any, and he's given his glory to us. So he's not a narcissistic God who's like, I just need more people giving me affirmation. He's saying, I want to share my beauty with others, and let's share it with one another. But it's also, worship is also not only glorifying God, but it's becoming like Jesus because sin deforms. It distorts our ability to embody the glory of God. And, and so becoming like Jesus is the process in which God transforms us into the image we were made for so that in a clear way the glory of God can shine through us. We can embody it and show it in creation. How do we do that? One of the clear ways is we sacrifice. It's this idea of the surrender of our entire existence to God's glory. Not just words we say, not just songs we sing at a moment, but our entire being given to God. And who we worship, Anna Lucas, I call her a flamethrower with a smile. <laughs> she talked last week about who we worship. God alone. Worship God alone. God is the only object of worship that's worthwhile. 
Anything else deforms us. Nothing else is worthy of worship. You can know what you're worshiping by if, if you're starting to get deformed rather than formed. Idols deform us. They do bad things to us. And it's because we tend to become like what we worship. So that's why we want to worship Jesus, who's the image of what we were meant to be as humans. So the next two Sundays, today and today, not tomorrow, next week, I'm going to talk about where and when do we worship God. Where and when. And we've been basing this whole series on this one sentence from Paul. It says, I urge you, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And so, you know, we spent about three weeks on therefore. It's been a slow ride. But we've done a couple weeks on offer your bodies. But today is going to be talking about offering our bodies to the Lord in What's interesting is when Matt was talking, Matt doesn't know what I'm going to talk about, but he actually used the exact phrase I'm basing a lot of this sermon on. It's like, oh, it's a nice little affirmation, Lord. So, Lord, I, I just say this. I don't want to be operating on my human battery power here. I, I want us to be plugged into the source that is Father, Son, and Spirit, that Jesus, you promised you'd give the Holy Spirit. The Father would give the Holy Spirit so that what belongs to Jesus, you would give us. And you happen to, Jesus, have all that's the Father's. And so will you give us what we need? When you were in that moment in the garden, on the way to your betrayal, and you're telling the disciples, guys, trust me, it's a good thing that I'm going because the Holy Spirit's coming. That that very power and presence would be on each of us to hear what Jesus, the Word, wants to say to us. Amen. So, to kind of set up this whole idea, uh, idea of talking about where and when, we, we've, I want to remind us, this is so fundamental, that we remember why God created the world. And, and we said it's to glorify God, but it's really important that we understand what that means, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It, the, tr- the Trinity is not this um, kind of strange theological, oh, let's not really talk about it too much because it's too awkward. It is fundamental to understanding who God is. It's fundamental that, that we know God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because otherwise we get a distortion of who God is. And so what we see, if you look in John's 14 through 17, especially chapter 17, that God the Father loves and delights in His Son and so gives Him glory. Jesus says in John 17, 24, God, will you, will you, will you show off your glory, the same glory you gave me before the creation of the world? Why? Because you loved me. So all this beauty and praise God gives to His Son because He loves Him so much. And then the Son loves and delights in the Father, so returns the glory. If you look through any phrase in the New Testament about what does Jesus want. I did a study once on this because I just want to thought, well, I want to want what Jesus wants. And I'll tell you what arises to the very top of the most frequent thing that Jesus ever says. He just wants to do his father's will. He loves to glorify his father. And so here's the cool thing. He's just being himself, man. It's not he just got a new mission. He's like, oh, maybe I should do this. He 
gets to over and over again, Father, Son, and Spirit, giving love and glory to one another. And the way they do that is through the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit embodies and reveals the love and glory between Father and Son. So it's kind of like Father's here and Son's here and the Holy Spirit just running back and forth and saying hugs and loves. And it's eternally happening. This beautiful interchange that is God himself who needs nothing. He doesn't need a creation to give him glory. But here's what happens. God loves and delights in his son so much. He decides to share this love and delight with a creation. God is so outgoing in giving. Love is self-giving. How do we know that? That's what the Trinity does. So we can look throughout Scripture. And if you want to go back and see if this is actually in the Bible, we did this sermon a few weeks ago. You can look at it. But that he was so excited about his son, he's like, we got to share this thing you and I have, son. Let's make something. And share it. And so God does that and he gives his glory to creation. The beauty and power and majesty of God. He embeds in creation. How many of you guys have seen that, right? Seen it in the sunset. Seen it in the, in the stars. Seen it in mountains and oceans. You've seen something as big and amazing about this God who made things. And then creation embodies and declares God's glory, glory, particularly humans who are made in the image of God. We're going to talk more about that in just a minute. Guys, this, this should, if you let this get into your soul, you'll become less susceptible about feeling like your life is meaningless or you're not worth something. You, you are important because just existing delights God. Out of the overflow of his delight, whether you've done a single thing right, that you exist, makes him go, oh, that's so good. Look at how good Father, Son, Spirit. Yeah, I know. Look, there's Matt. He, that this is scriptural. That you existing is enough for God to see that was a great idea. Okay, so... If we're going to talk about worship of where and when, we've got to talk about space and time. Nerds unite. Come on. Like, like a goofball, I, I, I thought, I'm going, to, I'm going to email Dr. Ken Weed about this. <laughs> and it was awesome when he responded. I can't believe he took as much time as he did. But it was like this long. And he said, just so you know, space and time are not separate. They're the same thing. That's Einstein's theory of relativity. It's called space-time. I was like, oh, I knew that. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that. But here's what's fascinating is we see God making both space and time. Now, this is weird, right? Like, if you just think, before God, there's no space or time, where is he? Like, that, if your mind hurts, then you're thinking right. If you're freaking out, I remember I said at Fusion Camp, there, there was a couple of the kids, I, t I said that God always existed, and they took it seriously, and they're like, I'm scared. It's like, yes, you should be. You should be. I can't, it freaks me out. But God, we see, made space. Days one through three, he makes the heavens and earth. He makes the sky. He makes the land, the things that we take for granted. And he says, man, that was good. 
look what I did. Son, spirit, do you see it? Yeah, real, well done. And then he makes time. And, it's, and there was evening, there was morning. We see that over and over again. And then also on day four, he makes lights to govern the day and the night to mark sacred times, days, and years. And then he says, that's a great thing I did. Well done, me. And so what's my point of saying this? Is that God delights in His creation. He loves it. He's sharing what Father and Son through the Spirit have shared for all time and eternity. He delights in space and time. And He's created all things to glorify Him, which means God means God really cares about where and when we worship Him. That this is, that, that's the payoff what I'm trying to get to. It actually really, really matters to God where and when we worship Him. Why? Because we know because he, he made space and time. It's not an accident. He thinks it's cool. You following me? Okay. All right. So today we're just going to talk about where do we worship God. And, and when we talk about where, to, to understand the, the testimony that we have in Scriptures, we have to think back to what the ancient world, the way the ancient world thought about the, the world and divine. And, and it, it, it conceived of something called a temple. It's not unique to uh, Jewish or Christian faith. Pretty much any religious expression saw that temple was like this sacred space on earth where a god would dwell and be worshipped. And so then in that temple, you usually put an image. And I said, why not a unicorn? Because, right? I mean, I'm not aware of any unicornians, but they might exist somewhere. They probably do. If we looked hard enough on the internet, we'd probably find unicornians. But as we look at Scripture, and, and, and what I'm going to go through here, this, uh, this next little bit, you can see really good stuff in Bible Project on the theme temple. And if you do it in the app, you'll get a lot of extra data in there. Um, they, they outline this really well. But in the biblical, biblical narrative, all of creation is considered God's temple. The whole thing. So here's a scripture that helps us. So Mount Zion... He built a sanctuary. This is, this, so Mount Zion is another way of saying Jerusalem. And on this hill, Mount Zion was the temple. But he says he built it like the heights, like the earth. In other words, like his temple, the earth, he built this temple on Mount Zion. And then we see these wonderful things. Like, Heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. So that all of earth is God's temple at creation. And then specifically, we, we had this in our baby dedication, this place called Eden, this actual space because there's limitations to the things that God makes called humans. He makes these humans, makes them in his own image, the image of God. He created them, male and female, he created them. So I said, every temple in the ancient world has an image of the God, an idol statue. And you know why? that we're not allowed to make any statues of God is because we're the statues of God. We're the image of God. We are the embodiment of God's brilliance and beauty on the earth. 
So Genesis 1.27, he created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Isn't that wild? And so that says, now God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. Now, here's the thing to think about. This human is limited in space. So while all the earth is God's temple, God still needs a limited space in which he can be with humanity. He can be worshipped and dwell with his image. That makes sense? So it's this place called Eden, delight, which by the way, delight, come on. What a, he, he named the place, let's hang out at delight. Me growing up, that was, church wasn't what I thought delight was. It was like bad smell of coffee, you know, it's, at least growing up in my days. But something went wrong. God, God gives humanity this chance to worship him or not worship him. And Anna talked about it a lot last week. And, and we chose not to. We chose to go our own way. We, we did our own thing, and it deformed us, and we had to leave Eden. Now think about this for a second. It's not a metaphor. It's, we had to leave a space. We had to leave the space where God dwells and is worshipped. And here's what's interesting. At the end of this, this is the narrative. It says, the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, Trinity, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now notice that for a second. Right now, humanity is deformed. Is God banishing humanity because, ooh, you're ugly, get away from me. He doesn't want us stuck like this. See what I'm saying? He doesn't want us, don't, if they take from the tree of life, they're going to live forever like in this broken state. Let's not allow that. Another very important idea. God's not disgusted. He's wanting to rescue. So the Lord banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. After he drove the man out, placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Why? For our protection. So, where do we worship God now? The story goes on, and you guys know it, most of you, it, that God wants to rescue humanity so he can dwell with them and be worshipped and be in this loving interchange. Talks to Abraham, works through Abraham's son, and then his son, and his sons, and they end up becoming this people group in Egypt, but it goes badly for them. They end up slaves in Egypt, and then God calls this dude Moses and said, we, we got it, we got it. This is not at all where I wanted my people to go. So he's wanting to rescue the whole earth, but he's gonna do it through this people. And he, he talks to this guy, Moses, and, and while he's trying, which God is so patient, by the way, he's trying to convince Moses to do his job. And Moses is like, I don't think I'm the guy. Which, by the way, I've learned the hard way. Don't try to talk God out of that. It's just a bad idea. He's smarter and he loves us more. And also he can, he, know, he knows that Vulcan grip where he knows your pain points are. So God says, listen, listen, listen. I know you're saying, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? You are not the issue. He says, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God in this place. 
Why is God leading them? He wants them to worship him in a place at this mountain. You'll recognize it when you're here. You'll know I was telling the truth. You will be back in this place and you'll be worshiping me. Isn't that interesting? So at that place, at that mountain, God shows up, Mount Sinai, Exodus 19 through really the end of Exodus. And while Moses is there, God designs for Moses a tabernacle. He says, I'm going to dwell with you guys, and you'll be able to worship me here in this space, right here in your midst. And here's what's crazy about this tabernacle, and this is where the Bible Project guys are amazing, and I could totally nerd out on this for a while, but I won't. They had like 16 pages of this in their notes. It's so cool. It's a replay of Eden that we see in Eden. We have the dry land in Genesis 1, but then there's the land of Israel in Jerusalem. Then there's the land of Eden, Genesis 2.18. Then there's the courtyard and the tabernacle. Then there's the garden of Eden itself, Genesis 2.8, which mimics the holy place, which then the tree of life in the center, which is like the holy of holies in the center. And then you have all this beautiful imagery of like a menorah, which looks like the tree of life, where you've got, you know, pomegranates that are like part of a garden, and you've got cherubim in the front and then if you look straight at the tabernacle you'll see there's this fire of the altar that you look through it'd be like the flaming swords of the cherubim which are on the then the curtains right here and there's the presence of god it's like this is pretty cool god's saying i this i want eden i want to be with you i want to be able to dwell with you and you to worship me but and so eventually you know i'm going real fast in the story that that there becomes a permanent temple when Israel gets into the promised land and they build it in Jerusalem on this mountain, Mount Zion. And they do worship the Lord. They, they do things like declare the glory of God. We've got the Psalms that we don't exactly know how the Psalms were used at the temple. But there's enough evidence in there to know that, okay, they're declaring the glory of God. And they offer sacrifices, but there's this problem. And the problem is that it's broken humans, deformed humans who cannot adequately embody the glory of God. And so what ends up happening over time is this, this worship becomes toxic. The, the prophets eventually end up saying, your worship is corrupt. It's all messed up. And so God is so intent on healing them and it, that, that he, he lets the temple be destroyed. And they get sent into exile. Now think about how disorienting is that. You know as a people that you worship God in a place where he dwells. Even though God is everywhere present, he chooses to show up in a place because we limited humans because it can only be in one place at one time. So they go into exile, but the prophets, these guys who are hearing from God, speak of a future temple that God is going to make. Isaiah says this, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple, so that's Mount Zion, where the Lord's temple is, will be established as the highest of the mountains. In case you didn't know, it's not a high mountain. It's like a bump. It's like Turkey Mountain. <laughs> so, so it's a big deal for God to say, it's going to be the highest of all mountains. Because he made Everest. He knows what he's talking about. That, that means something here. It's a, it will be exalted above the hills. And all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths We'll be healed again. And so 
The Israelites are in exile. This, Isaiah said this just before they went into exile. They would have had this promise. But so they do come back and create a second temple. And that's where your story like Nehemiah and Ezra. But it never achieves what the prophets predicted. It's because they had all the same problems. They had corruption in the temple. They had, they're just broken. So all of that is the context into which Jesus shows up. That's the whole history. And so Jesus is this really interesting dude at so many levels. And he has a lot of interesting conversations. And so Jesus has this conversation. He's, he's in Samaria. And he's at a well and meets a woman. And, and they have this conversation. She's a Samaritan. And he's a Jew. And she says, he's just given a word of knowledge that he like knows how many times she's been married and that she's not married with the guy that she's, he, she's with right then. And she's like, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> and then she goes, this is so weird. Then why is this the next sentence? Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship in Jerusalem. Now, historically... The Samaritans and the Jews, they, they just didn't get along. So the, the Samaritans built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And we think from where this location was, she could see Mount Gerizim and say, well, we're, we think this is the place to worship. But you Jews say it's in Jerusalem on the temple. But here's something fascinating Jesus says in reply to her question, which was a big controversy for all of them. He said, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We, we worship what we do know for salvations from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. What is Jesus saying? He's saying neither of the places are the place to worship God. And he's addressing this, this brokenness thing. This toxicity that ends up in worship year after year after year. And then when we see Jesus, as Paul describes him later, we understand what's happening, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What does that mean? He's the image in the temple. He, he's that vision of what humanity was meant to be, the embodiment of the glory of God on earth. And then Jesus starts say, saying some crazy stuff. First of all, John says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That phrase, made his dwelling, is from it's the same Greek word used in the Greek Old Testament to say, made the tabernacle. Jesus was the tabernacle among us. And then Jesus, when he's speaking to some uh, religious leaders, he says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And they're like, wait, it took 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Now, either this guy is crazy or something amazing is happening because he's saying that his body is the place where God dwells and where God is worshipped. Jesus' body is the temple. I mean, these guys have this imagery in their heads. They're thinking, this guy is crazy. 
or is God? And then Jesus starts talking to his followers and giving him these hints as to what he's up to because they're confused all the time. And if you're confused by God all the time, join the crowd. That's what being a disciple is about. It's not about certainty. It's about intimacy. It's about trust. Then Jesus says this. He says to his disciples, I'm going to ask the Father. He's going to give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. For he lives with you and will be in you. On that day, you'll realize I'm in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. Somehow he's saying that, that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that Jesus was anointed with, that, that, that's been in the Old Testament testimony, that, that showed up in, in, in the tabernacle so that we saw a cloud over it by day and fire at the night, and, and that it was like scary to be around. It was so powerful. That spirit is going to be in you and that Jesus will somehow be in you. The same Jesus that said he's the temple. And then we see in Acts 2 that it happened. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Those who had put their faith in Jesus. Those who said, Jesus, you are who you say you are. He filled them with that same spirit. And then Paul says this to the Corinthian believers who were making some bad decisions with their bodies. He says, don't you guys know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You are to embody the glory of God in his brilliance. So we act like that because we are the temple. Now where God dwells and he is worshipped in each of our bodies. And I mean it when I say in your body, in your actual body, the Holy Spirit is living. The same spirit that descended on Mount Sinai is living in your body. How's that even possible? I can feel the Holy Spirit's getting excited about this. He's like, yeah, I do. (laughs) But then here's something really interesting. As Paul goes on to describe the people who said, Jesus, you are who you say you are. I bow my knee to you. You're you're the king. You are God. That, yes, the temple's in each one of those bodies. But here's what's fascinating. Paul says that just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts from form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we are all given the one spirit to drink. That when Paul talks about Christ, when he talks about Jesus, Jesus is a man who has a body, but he also is a head over a body that's all of us. And and, and Paul says it further. He he says, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, you followers of Jesus, but you're fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Build on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, 
The whole building's joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Plural. We are the temple in which God dwells and where God is worshiped. God loves space and time. So here's, here's what, where do we worship? It's, it's simple. We worship God in our bodies. Wherever your body happens to be, you can worship him there. And we worship in Christ's body. We worship in our bodies and we worship in Christ's body. And we talk about worshiping in our bodies everywhere. Guys, everywhere you are is a holy temple. Why? Because you are there. Which means, I mean, how many great stories. And, and, and I want somebody to share some. BCTulsa.com share. I want to hear this. Of where you worship the Lord in the most unlikely of places. I, I remember I used to get up earlier and earlier when my kids were little because I was trying to spend time with the Lord. And somehow they just kept on getting up earlier and earlier too. <laughs> Until I had heard this guy say this. You know, why don't you worship the Lord with your kids? Aha. Uh-huh. So my prayer time. Yeah, I know. Right. In my head, they were a distraction. It, it, all parents confess you've thought the same thing, right? Keep me from the presence of God. <laughs> Some of you are feeling that right now. Just like I'm just trying to go to the bathroom, man. Leave me alone. But I remember for me in my oldest, I just realized the thing was we'd, we had to walk and just high five back and forth. He was th- th- about three years old, and so that was my prayer time. We'd worship God in our bodies. There are times I, I used to just drag my kids everywhere because did you know if I worship and they're around, they think it's normal? <laughs> and so we'd just take them places. And, and I've just heard so many good stories. Brother Lawrence has the best stories 400 years ago where he's meeting God and worshiping him while he washes dishes. We, we don't ever get to say, you know, like, does anybody have that annoying neighbor? Like my neighbors, I like to get up earlier and they like weed. It has an odor. Have you noticed this? We got the same schedules. I can't worship God here. Really? Temple's here, man. Temple's here. Temple's here. And then we worship God not just in our bodies, every and I, I, seriously, I'd love to hear some stories. You put on, they're so encouraging to all of us to make our homes a temple, make our jobs a temple. One of the most profound encounters I had with God was it, it, both prophetic and he, he brought back to my mind a word I hadn't heard for nine years that God had, uh, that someone had prophesied over me and it was the worst time of my career and, and I was in my office and the Holy Spirit descended on me. And I worshiped Jesus because we were sharing in each other's suffering. It was this holy place at my little desk in an office. Because I was there. The temple was there. 
But we worship in Christ's body. This is a really, really big deal. We're talking about where do we worship? Well, how do you find Christ's body? Well, you need some other people. (laughs) You need some other people more than just you. And apparently, you know, it's been an interesting, it's been an interesting last three or four years. Um, there's a there's a survey. I tried to memorize it and I can't remember it now. But it's it's a national survey that was a longitudinal study done by like you, there there are people from like the University of Chicago. I mean, there's reputable people talking about uh, church meeting attendance pre COVID and post. In short, it ain't so great. We've had about a good ten percent drop off, and then young adults about thirty percent. But it makes kind of sense. Right? We're, we're this digital world, we kind of think, you know, you know, it's the same, right? I heard a really fascinating podcast. There's a, a group called uh, Humane, something, Center for Humane Technology. They have some fascinating podcasts. I don't know if I agree with everything they're doing, but they're just saying, let's not kill each other on social media. I think that's a pretty good idea. And it was an interview with a psychologist um, who's been doing it for about 40 years. She's well-known, a stare something. Ah, I'm aging. And the psychologist, she's got two different podcasts. She's got, um, you know, just a lot of data out on the web. A guy wanted to have an appointment with her, but she was booked too far out. So he got frustrated, and he made an AI of her. Because she's got all that data on the internet, right? She didn't know it was happening. And, and then he went to a session with the AI he built of her. And he said it was great. And so the interview was, yeah, psychologist, what do you think of that? She's like, I think I'm flattered. Um, but that's so sad. Because if, if you know anything about counseling, the worst thing you can do is already know what you're going to say, all right? So that's what the AI knew at everything she'd ever said in her history and just responded to it. You just already know what you're going to say just makes you a bad counselor already. Can all the counselors in the room say yes and amen? Um, but it was a fascinating question. And I don't know if this uh, psychologist was Christian or not. It didn't seem like it, but... She's saying there's something about being embodied that is irreplaceable. When humans are together in bodies, there's dynamics that happen that cannot be replaced. And and, and apparently, whoever the writer of Hebrews was writing to saw this happen. He said, let us consider how we must spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Here's here's the thing we've got to see, because there's more data in this text here. It is a really big deal that we meet with our bodies, the other bodies in Christ. It is serious business. Here in Hebrews they say, say, encourage one another daily as long as it's a day, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. What's the implication? The implication is that I stop meeting with other believers. I'm going to be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. It's going to happen. 
Another thing the writer of Hebrews says, don't throw away your confidence. He's saying, don't stop meeting together. Don't throw away your confidence. Have you ever noticed when you haven't been around believers for a long time, things that once sounded crazy to you in the world's way of thinking start to sound normal? And here's the hard thing about deception. You don't know when you're deceived. That's the point of it. So I love, I love how Anna Lucas is, she's always done collective this way. She says, we've got to get together to be deslimed, deslimed from what we're approached with lies all the time. How many things have you read that you thought, where's the world going? Where's there a solution? Listen, I, I worship now. I have worship music on when I read the news. I think it's important to read the news. I want to know what's going on. But I also need, a, I need reality. So I'm serious. I'll play worship and just read through all my BBC stuff and these guys and these guys and these guys to see what crazy stuff's going down. But to remember, oh, he made space and time. He made space and time. What am I nervous about? But what's absolutely critical in it, and it seems like it's just important for us to know, and, and it's kind of like I'm definitely preaching to the choir because you're actually here. <laughs> but we have to assemble bodily together. We have to. It doesn't have to be in this context. It can be different contexts. We're going to, in a few weeks, talk about historically some. The church has met all kinds of places, but it's met in places. Does that make sense? Maybe I'll be even a little more clear. If, if you stop assembling, you will be picked off. I, I, I've watched it for my whole life. When I, I just don't need the church, I don't need other people, you will be picked off. I, I, I've seen it 100% of the time. That doesn't have to be what you like or whatever, but it's kind of good to go to places you don't like. Because if you only go places you like, you're never changed, see. <laughs> I remember Eugene Peterson, uh, he had said he was always bad at small groups because when he put them together, it was just people who liked each other that met with each other. He said, and that's not the church. You need annoying people in your group. <laughs> and if you think there are none, you might be the one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I just talk and people love it. <laughs> oh, I better end this. I didn't plan any of that. And when I don't plan, it gets bad fast. We've got to assemble together. And so, so the thing is, where do we worship? We worship in our bodies, which means everywhere. <laughs> Shame. That was Shane's version of an amen that sounded a lot like a yawn. <laughs> I'm just going to take it as an amen. <laughs> hey, I, I'll worship Jesus in conversations right as I know they're getting tense. I don't do it out loud. It's like, oh, Jesus, I need you. I'm yours. I'm yours. I can feel I'm going to freak out. It's coming. I love you, Jesus. Help me. And 
we do it together. We have to worship together. I used to think there was something wrong with me that I felt different emotions for Jesus when I was with the people of God than I was alone. And it's not true at all. It's actually super normal. That's what's supposed to happen. You feel this lift. And that's why it's fun to do this a long time with the people around you that you know they've been through stuff, man. I love to worship with Tim and Anna Mae. They've been through stuff, man. I love to worship with Matt. We've been through stuff together. We've cried together over 30 years. And for some crazy reason, he's worshiping God. Maybe this is true. You ever had that feeling? You ever feel like you're you're the only person out? You're in the right place, man. You're in the right place. You feel like, I don't feel what everybody's feeling. Awesome, you're in the right place. That happens to me 50-50 shot as to what my emotions will be. I have no idea. But I know when I'm with God's people and I start saying, okay, for just a minute I can turn my attention to this God they're talking about. Oh, I think this is real. So let's do it. Please share your stories. want to share them uh, with as many people as we can because they encourage us. Let's stand together. We'll just pray for just a minute about this, and then we're going to finish with our Oikos map prayer. But what I want you to do is let's take a look at this and just ask the Lord, Lord, is there anything you're wanting to do in me that may even be a little different than I'm doing right now with regard to either worshiping God just in my body, wherever I am, or in Christ's body? So we'll just take a minute in silence. Why don't you ask the Lord? And so whatever you feel like the Lord might be saying, uh, let's take a moment and make plans for it. I'm going to do mine publicly only because I have a microphone and you don't. Um, But just as an example, um, I just felt like the Lord is helping me to say um, how often I dwell on myself when I'm worshiping. And and that he just wants to help me with that. So I repent of that, Lord. And especially as a pastor, you think, is the worship cool or is it better than somebody else's, which is like nobody even knows or cares, I hope. Um, and it's just the antithesis of worship. So, Lord, just forgive me and help me. Uh, that's not all that goes on in my mind, in case you're wondering. But, but it's a temptation. And I thank you, Lord, for your help to pull me up into your glory is to see you because I just need you so much. So I don't know what the Lord said to you, but make plans to do it, okay? Jesus loved to glorify the Father. And how did he do that? By doing what he said. So he said over and over again, John 14, 30, I love the Father, and here's how I demonstrate it. I do whatever he tells me. That's why I love him back. Cool. All right, let's, let's pray for the people far from God in our life. If you're new to Believer's Church, just think of and maybe ask the Lord a few people that may be far from the Lord in your life that you want to pray for. 
I like to bring their faces to my mind. I, I, man, the Lord answers these prayers. I've had guys that I prayed for who had no interest in Jesus literally email me out of the blue and talk for months. I'm saying God is more interested than we are in answering our prayers. So let's pray this prayer out together. Lord, I pray for the people in my life who are far from you. Deliver them from the evil one. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Love you guys.